0: Is advised.
2: Good evening, everybody, and welcome. It's 11 p.m. Eastern Time on Wednesday, March 2nd, 2022, and thank you for joining us for the 125th episode of the Rock and Roll Shrink Radio Show here on Blog Talk Radio. Special thanks to our host, NDB Media. I'm Casey Shapiro, and with me tonight is Dr. Stephen Mathis, a.k.a. the Rock and Roll Shrink. <laughs> We'll be taking calls from our listeners all evening during the show at 914-338-0314. You can also follow along in our live chat room on blogtalkradio.com as the show is happening. Before we begin, a couple quick disclaimers. So this show does not constitute a doctor-client relationship, nor legal or medical representation of any kind. Also, the views expressed on this show are those of Dr. Mathis and Ms. Shapiro, And are not an official stance on behalf of the psychological community or its peer vetting or regulatory bodies. And now, a topic-relevant bit of music played by Dr. Mathis himself. Take it away, Doc. As always, thank you very much for that, and if you would, please let us know the name of the song and the artist and its relevance to tonight's topic. Uh,
0: The name of the song is called When, um, and it's really about what do you do when you're born uh, with differences, and what does that mean for your life, and how are you going to live it, and what are you going to do with that? Uh, and, uh, as is so often the case, uh, in these little, uh, side tracks that I take, uh, it's a, uh, self-portrait. <laughs> it's, uh, it's one of my tunes.
2: Excellent. All right. That's fantastic. Thank you very much for that. I, I always kind of get a kick out of when you have the, uh, the ones that you've written yourself, because it's, it's a nice little surprise and they blend right in. There you okay. go. Okay. Yeah. So, as Dr. Mathis mentions, tonight's episode is entitled, The Kids Are Alright, Giftedness, Autism, and ADHD, which we will get to discussing in a moment. Before we begin our topic discussion, though, let's first go to the Rock and Roll Shrink recalls, which is a moment of rock music trivia stories as recounted by Dr. Mathis, if you would, sir.
0: So I thought I'd do something a little different this evening. Um, when you look at the world of classic music that was released back in the day, uh, you have a lot of people who argue, oh, this was a great year, that was a great year, oh, you know. Um, <clears throat> but what I have found in my own uh, minuscule research is that for some reason, 71 seemed to be a really... Crazy release year for rock records, and I thought I would talk about all of the major records, many of which had now become just classic records. Uh, would They were just released, you know, as like, okay, well, this is our next record kind of thing, would have gone on to become really uh, rock icons uh, that were released all in 71. Uh, And so I'm going to start off, and I'm I'm going to talk about them in order of release, (laughs) because I can. (laughs) Okay, Uh, so the first one I'm going to mention is uh, the third album by Chicago Transit Authority, which by this time was now called Chicago, uh, because they were sued by the Chicago Transit Authority. And you would think that... <laughs> you know, a band that's trying to... Yeah, I mean, you'd think that a band that's trying to advertise their, their home city and, and, you know, it's like, come on, really? Anyway, uh, Chicago 3 got released uh, early in that year and that was followed very closely by Hooker in Heat, which was the canned heat record that was in tribute to their uh, lost brother who recently had died. Uh, Uriah Heep's record Salisbury was released there. And then the very first album by ZZ Top was released, which has become uh, kind of an iconic thing, particularly in in light of the passing of uh, their bassist uh, recently. Uh, Janis Joplin's Pearl was released in 71, early in the year. And the Yes album by the band Yes uh, was also released. Uh, Long Player by The Faces, which would be one of the last records that uh, Rod Stewart would uh, have with them was released and then later on Tapestry which has become one of Carol King's like Hallmark records was released that year. Uh, Hendrix released a semi-compilation uh, record called The Cry of Love which had a bunch of uh, stuff that he recorded with Billy Miles and some with uh, the uh, uh, his regular drummer uh, Mitch Mitchell who came back right after that uh Homo Pies Rock On was released, which was their last record with Peter Frampton, other than the live record they would release later that year. Uh, that was the last studio record that had Peter Frampton on it before Clem Clemson from uh, Coliseum came and joined them. Probably one of the biggest records uh, in terms of reaching superstardom that was released that year was Jethro Tull's Aqualung, which is Definitely one of my favorite records of all times, and arguably in the top 25, like ever. Uh, likewise, the Allman Brothers Live at the Fillmore East was also released, which was uh, one of their first live recording that uh, featured Dwayne Allman, uh, and that was done right before Eat a Peach, which was the last record he recorded with them before his untimely death. Uh, Paul McCartney released his second record, Graham, which caught a lot of uh, flack back in the day when it was released, uh, in part due to the fact that John Lennon had friends at Rolling Stone magazine that pretty much trashed the record. But it has since become uh, considered to be one of Paul's better solo releases. It was his second release after his first one, McCartney. Uh, The Doors released their last record with Jim Morrison, L.A. woman, uh, that year. And then shortly following that, one of my, probably my absolute favorite Rolling Stones record, Sticky Fingers, was released. Uh, and for those who don't know, that's the record that contains brown sugar on it, that has uh, the front cover of the uh, pants with the zipper on it, or if you were in England, the trousers <laughs> with the zipper on it. Uh, and that, for those who don't know, that album cover was designed by Andy Warhol. Oh, wow. Uh Yeah. So right after that, then Lizzy releases their first record self-titled, and the Doobie Brothers release their first record self-titled. The James Gang releases their last studio record with Joe Walsh, Thirds, which uh, contains Walk Away, which is probably their best-known recording. Uh, Graham Nash of CSNN and CSNNY releases his first solo record, Songs for Beginners, which I love. I think that's a great record. For those who, folks who have not heard it, it's got some really good tunes off of it. Uh, recently, having departed, his band, uh, blues trio band Taste, Rory Gallagher, uh, releases his first solo record, just called Rory Gallagher. And Rod Stewart releases his first record, Every Picture Tells a Story. Which has Maggie May off of it, which is, you know, since become a bazillion selling uh, song. Uh, Tarkus is then released by Emerson, Lake and Palmer that year, which is a great record for folks who don't know that. And probably the most uh, well known record by Joni e. Mitchell was released, and I think Rolling Stones' label is in like the top ten best records of all times. So Blue uh, was released right after Tarkus. Uh, shortly after that, the Moody Blues released their record, Every Good Boy Deserves Favor. Uh, shortly thereafter, Deep Purple releases Fireball. It has just a number of gigantic hits off of it. Uh, Jack Bruce uh, releases a solo record, Harmony Row, which I think was his third since uh, Departing Cream. His first record, uh, Songs for a Taylor have my all-time favorite Jack Bruce song on it, which is themed from an imaginary Western, that if anybody knows that song, they probably know Mountain's version of it, which is amazing. And when I hear Leslie West's solo uh, on that record that he plays at Woodstock Live, I still get chill bumps and cry. I mean, it's it's amazingly emotional. I just love that flippant song, the way he plays it. Uh, not to mention the fact that Leslie's one of my all-time favorite guitar heroes, but he just does a masterful job on that solo, in my opinion. Uh, The seminal Master of Reality by Black Sabbath is released, and in that particular uh, album, they had had uh, because Tony Aumi's fingers were still bothering him, they actually tuned some of the guitar songs down a a, a whole step and a half down to kind of ease up the tension on the strings, and really created some super heavy sounds uh, for that record, and it has really gotten a lot of airplay. Uh, Ten Years After, release A Space and Time uh, on it, which I think has, I'd love to change the world off of it, if I'm not mistaken. And then probably, if not the best, one of the best uh, non-concept albums recorded by The Who was released, Who's Next?, Uh, which was taken in part from songs that were abandoned from the Lighthouse Project, which was supposed to be a rock opera that uh, Pete Townsend sort of abandoned and they took a lot of songs off of it and uh, used them in Who's Next. Uh, Fleetwood Mac releases Future Games, and this is the old school Fleetwood Mac, not the new Fleetwood Mac, the the pop version of Fleetwood Mac. And I'm not slamming, I'm just describing them, because Fleetwood Mac started out, for those who don't know, Fleetwood Mac started out as a blues band and a blues rock band. Uh, They were not the the glitzy, you know, uh, Lindsey Buckingham, Stevie Nicks, you know, hit-making machine band. Uh, Three Dog Night releases Harmony, uh, which I think has an old-fashioned love song off of it, which was written uh, not by them. In fact, they didn't do a lot of songs written by them. They did a lot of, of uh, Paul Williams songs, and uh, old-fashioned love song happens to be one of them. Uh, Uriah Heep releases Look at Yourself, which has a lot of their Good hits of it. Uh, Free, Paul Rogers' original band that he came to fame with, and Simon Kirk, the drummer, uh, who are still with Free to this day. Uh, oh, excuse me, with a bad company, because when Free dissolves, Simon Kirk and uh, Paul Rogers uh, form Bad Company. Uh, Free Live is released, and Santana releases Santana 3. Uh, the James Gang released their uh, live album, James Gang Rides Again, which is definitely their last release with, James, with uh, Joe Walsh. It's a live record. It's a really good record for folks who aren't uh, familiar with that. They do a great version of the Yardbirds' uh, Lost Woman off of it. It is really good. Uh, John Lennon releases his seminal album, Imagine, Wolf, which has the title track by the same name, which is probably his most well-known song, Cass Stevens, one of my all-time favorite acoustic heroes, uh, releases Teaser and the Fire Cat. Uh, Hawkwind releases uh, In Search of Space. The Doors released their post-Jim uh, Morrison uh, album, uh, Other Voices, which is frankly one of my all-time favorite Doors records. I am not a Jim Morrison freak. I know most people are going to go, uh, but I really despised him frankly no offense uh, i just he was not my cup of tea and i love that record uh it, it got a lot of uh not good accolades in the day but i love that record uh pink floyd released metal and Ario speedwagon released their first record by the same name and that's uh pre kevin cronin because he was not the original vocalist for folks who don't know that If you listen to Riding the Storm Out, that's got a different vocalist on it, the studio recording of that. Uh, The all-time multi-jillion dollar record, American Pie, by Don McLean gets released. And a then-unknown pianist, singer, songwriter, Billy Joel, releases Cold Spring Harbor, his first recording. Elton John, another piano songwriter, but by this time very well-known, releases Madman Across the Water. Uh, Genesis releases Nursery Crime, which I think is their first recording uh, with Phil Collins doing a lot of this, uh, taking over the role uh, that was vacated by their former lead vocalist. Uh, Fragile releases Yes, which is I think their first Rick Wakeman record. Uh, Rory Gallagher releases his second recording, Deuce. Uh, traffic releases the low spark of high heel boys a studio recording oh. and humble, yeah, great record. And Humble Pie releases another frickin great live record, Rocking the Fillmore, which is their last recording with Peter Frampton. Nazareth releases their first album by the same name, Nazareth. Uh, and for folks who don't have that record, it's really good. They've got some really good blues, uh, rocky stuff, uh Scottishy blues, rocky stuff. Carly Simon releases her seminal record, Anticipation. And probably the biggest record, uh, or one of the biggest records that year, Led Zeppelin IV gets released, the Zoso record, as I like to call it. And I think a lot of people refer to it as that. Uh, Yeah, following on the wheels of that, the Electric Light Orchestra released their first record called the Electric Light Orchestra. What a catchy title. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and Paul McCartney's new band, since the Beatles' Wings release, Wildlife. Uh, King Crimson releases the record Islands. Uh, the Apple-sponsored Al- uh, band Bad Company release Straight Up, which is a fantastic record. Uh, Carol King tries to capture her early glory in a release uh, that didn't do as well. Uh, as Tapestry, but she releases music. Uh, The band America releases their first record, America, which is also a fabulous effort. And they catch a lot of slack for being a CSN uh, copy band, but I think they're really good on their own right, frankly. And probably one of my all-time favorite live records, and certainly the uh, live uh, concert that started most benefits uh, the Concert for Bangladesh. Uh, by George Harrison and friends. And that got released I think on the last day of December or close to it. It didn't get released in Europe till, uh the following year, early January, but it got released in this country uh, the end of December that year. And for those who haven't heard that, it is un-freaking-believable. It's a who's who of just about everybody who was anybody back in the day uh, when that was done, including Eric Clapton, uh, the band Badfinger, Billy Preston, Leon Russell, uh, Bob Dylan. <laughs> I mean <laughs> it's uh it is definitely a who's who of, of holy molies on there. He's I mean he's just got Jim Keltner, uh Ringo Starr. Uh Robbie Shankar opens up and does a whole thing. It it's freaking fabulous. Uh if you have not folks who have not heard that record that you have lived under a rock. Uh, and if you have come out of the rock and buy that record, <laughs> it's freaking fabulous. Uh, it's really, really, really good. Okay, so those are the things that got released, rock-oriented things that got released in 1971, and that's why I think that was a an amazingly stellar year for rock music.
2: Very cool. Alrighty, thank you very much for all that. Sure. I was actually thinking about the year thing when you mentioned that. Do you suppose that this extreme blossoming of the industry had anything to do with Vietnam winding down?
0: I suspect so. I, and, you know, the, it kind of comes on the tail movement of the free love hippie movement and the disillusionment right. of the hippie movement with, you know, uh, Charles Manson, which is the won't get fooled, you know, part of the impetus of won't get fooled again on who's next. And, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know, but there was a there was a whole lot of creativity going on in the seventies. I'm telling you what, and
1: you <laughs> know, having
0: having grown up as a young person, as a very young person during that time, uh, I didn't really appreciate how awesome because it was just normal. I mean, there was so much good music coming out. You just kind of went, okay, yeah, that's another good band. So what? <laughs> you took it for granted, so, yeah, yeah. Oh, I, I absolutely. Did. I should be bit for that, um, but yeah. <laughs> yes, I. I took that for granted, and especially now you hear the stuff coming out today, and no offense because there are some artists that are really stellar, but by and large, the music today kind of pales in comparison, which is why most of the folks that I see, the, the adolescents, young adults I see, are listening to their dads or grandfathers' music or whatever, or their older brothers' music, and going, ah, uh, yeah, dude, the music today, like, bites. <laughs> uh, so it, it's so that's how interesting. you got to be the You're rock and roll straight. Yeah, but it's so funny having these kids come in and go, dude, I heard your show and you were playing Hendrix. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, I've, I've got a wow. couple of kids. Who like, I know. I was I was blown away. I have a couple of folks that I see who go, yeah, you know, that point you made about addictions on your show really, really hit hard. And I was really thinking, I'm like, you've heard the radio show? <laughs> I'm like, holy That's shoes. Awesome.
2: So I guess we'll have to behave ourselves now. Hi guys. No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay.
0: That's one of the, it's kind of because that's one of the things that most of the folks that, that hear my show go, you know, I love the fact that you're just you on the show. You're the same I said, yeah, crazy MFer than I am in here <laughs> And they start laughing. I go, Yeah, I'm weird everywhere I go. That never changes yeah. <laughs> You know. Yeah, I think both oh of us God. are
2: like that. It's like this is what you get all the time. This is not a special put on. You yeah. Know, we're, we're acting
0: that's crazy. It, it, it is not, an, yeah, to quote Pete Townsend, it is not an eminence front. <laughs> yeah, exactly.
1: It's the so. real
0: deal, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, yeah, totally I've had fair. several people. I have a couple of, of parents of the kids that I see go, wow, I really liked your radio show. I'm like, holy moly. And I went, you weren't like oh, uh, nice. freaked out. They go, no, you know, we kind of expected it. It's you. I'm like, okay, well, I feel, I'm feeling much better now. <laughs>
2: <You know? laughs> You know, oh my God. Be great. You know, if if anybody is listening is we would love to hear from you guys on topics that, you know, maybe we haven't touched on enough, you know, to help you or if there's something on your mind or whatever, you know, I, I kind of draw topics from social media or things that people I know are going through or if, if that doesn't provide anything, I'll grab something I'm going through. But, you know, I did not quite realize there were that many people listening. I sort of knew because I watched the board. Like, after we do the episode, it will convert it and then host it as an MP3. So it's a file. You can just download it or you can even play it on the website. And after a few hours, it will tell you, like, how many people either came to listen to it live or went to it afterwards. So listen to it as a file or download it. And I never know where they're coming from i just know that people stopped by so i have no idea what right. they did but that's well good at to least know. some of
0: them are folks that i'm working with so i i and honestly that really i mean i joke about it a lot but that really did take me by surprise i was flabbergasted
2: well that's excellent i welcome to them and you know please let us know what else we can do so, yeah, Absolutely. Right.
0: Any of you folks out there that hear these things live or listen to them after the fact, if you have any ideas for shows or questions you have, please send them in because we would love to try to address some of your stuff. It would be make our job a lot easier.
2: Yes, yes. You can uh, send them a message to Facebook page or also uh, Dr. Mathis's, uh general consumption email address is up on the Rock and Roll Shrink website so you can get it from there as well and contact us that way and let us know what you want to hear about. So, all right, with that, let's go ahead and start diving in. So we'll take calls from any listeners that are out there live and questions in the online chat room throughout the rest of the evening until around midnight. It's 1125, so we've got a little over a half hour left to talk. Uh, Feel free to give us a call. And, again, the number is 914-338-0314. Okay, episode 125, the kids are all right, giftedness, autism, or ASD, um, no, excuse me, autism, yeah, it is ASD, sorry, we just did the uh, the antisocial one, so I'm getting my abbreviations all mushed together, because <laughs> we got ASD and ADHD and, and all this stuff, it's a lot of abbreviations, goodness, okay. So tonight's topic was born from a meme that was going around social media, primarily Facebook and Twitter. Um, it was originally a tweet, and people copied it and pasted it everywhere. And It's been the last couple of weeks where I have seen it. I don't know how old it actually is because I have misplaced the original meme. I thought that I had posted it, but I haven't been able to find it. So I'm going to paraphrase for you basically what it said. Um, It was a tweet that said, gifted kids, how long did it take you before you were also diagnosed with either ADHD or ASD? And so at first glance, there appears to be some manner of connection between giftedness and either ADHD or ASD, sometimes both. There is significant correlation, but we all know correlation is not causality, so we want to look into this a little more. We want to investigate and discuss the potential causality of things or the lack thereof. So tonight we will discuss what precisely is giftedness when we talk about it, basically high IQ. And I may read a small snip from an NIH study on this. It's long and it's super crunchy, but what I want to read to you is the term that they're using instead and why they're not calling it giftedness. And so anyway, when we talk about that, how... It gets tested and found today. Uh, Possible flaws and social biases in IQ testing. There have been quite a few objections over the last couple of decades about the original way that this was done, and some tests have been shifted. Dr. Mathis will bring up some stuff on some of these tests. I've never, I've taken them, but I've never administered one. So, Um, also the prevalence of ADHD or ASD or both. In gifted persons versus NT neurotypical gifted awkwardness, just the awkwardness of being a kid and being different. And if you're super different, sometimes you get super awkward. <laughs> you know, is that a sign of anything, or is that just awkwardness because you're outside the lines? You know, we'll talk about that in closing remarks. And before we get started, I'm gonna check in with you real quick, Dr. Mathis, and see if there's anything that you'd like to add before we dive in.
0: Yep, I'm good. Thank you.
2: Okay. So first, and, and this show, like some of the last few, is not heavily scripted. So we're just going to talk extempore about these things. So I want to talk about what precisely is giftedness or high IQ and how it's tested and found today. So first, um, if I could get you to talk about what giftedness is or having a high IQ and what it's not, there's sometimes misperceptions about what we're measuring and why that matters. So is that something that you could kind of uh, explain to our laypeople audience for us?
0: It's funny because I went over this last night on a test results conference I did on uh, somebody that I tested. Um, Because as you know, I do a lot of testing. I probably do Well, I don't probably. I do all the testing for all three offices I'm affiliated with because I'm the only masochist, uh, I mean dedicated guy, who uh, likes to do this stuff. And really, it's like I was telling the person I was testing in the family, it's not that I like doing the testing or I like torturing people for 12 hours, (laughs) um, but I like the data I get uh, because it really gives me a pragmatic snapshot into how somebody's brain works. So first of all, let's talk about what this is Um, and that's a great place for us to start so in general first of all let's talk about IQ because it's really a misnomer so when this whole concept started this all started with Alfred Binet back in the day when he was doing his uh, experiments and studies on how French school children learned back in the day and because his work and the work of uh, Jean Piaget uh, came to the public awareness and to the awareness of the French uh, education department and the government, they gave Alfred Binet a grant to, to try to set up some sort of testing device or assessment tools to figure out different mental, mental skill sets so that they could morph education for certain students, whether they were on the lower end or the higher end, that needed a different kind of education and really is the start of our quote-unquote special education movement. And it all started in France. And Benet uh, took the money and hired some medical school interns to help him and residents to help him with the testing and stuff. So he worked on it, got, developed the test, ran the, ran the uh, subject pools and all, and came out with a set of testing materials called the Monet Scales of Mental Abilities, which measure different skill sets in different areas. So you fast forward several years, and Goddard and Terman, who were two psychologists working out of Stanford University in America, in California, got wind of this and said, wow, we need something like that in America. And they contacted uh, the Banaya State and the government, French government and said, hey, would you be willing to schlep us the data from the stuff and the tests and all so that we could do translations and morph it to an educational system here in America? Because as most of you know, the European system is very different from ours. So they went, sure, and they sent them the data and Stanford University foot the bill for the, the folks uh, for Goddard and Terman to run the groups and do the whole thing. So years later, they finished their stuff and they published the first test, and they called it the Stanford for Stanford University, Binet for Alfred Binet, IQ test. And in our lovely American narcissism, we've taken this test that was supposed to measure different types of mental skill sets or abilities, and turned it into an intelligence test, which it was never intended to be. Okay? So that's problem number one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Houston, we might have a problem. Problem number two.
1: um,
0: Yeah, so then David Wexler comes along and says, hey, I want a test that measures slightly different types of mental abilities than Stanford-Binet and make it more academically oriented. And so he comes out with the Wechsler Scales of Intelligence, and he has a child version, a child-adolescent version. He has a little kid version and an adult version. So the WPSI, the Wechsler Preschool and Primary Scale of Intelligence, the WISC, the Wechsler Intelligence Scale for Children, and the WAIS the Wexler Adult Intelligence Scale. So he keeps the term intelligence, right? Mistake number 14,000. Anyway, so he he comes out with the Wexler tests, and the two standards in America to test this thing we call IQ is either the Wexler or the Stanford-Binet to this day. Now, they have, they're on iteration number 9,453 and a third or <laughs> whatever, uh, the Wexlers are up to uh, version 5 in some cases and version 4 in other cases. And I don't know what the Stanford Binet is up to because I stopped using Stanford Binet a long time ago. Um, Stanford Binet is a great test if you're trying to measure either, you know, uh, an, an echinoderm's uh, IQ, very, 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 very low. Or well, you're trying to measure, you know, Mycroft, Sherlock Holmes smarter, brother's IQ, very, 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 very high. It's not as good or efficient as the Wexler is for everybody else, which is most of us fo- folks here, okay? So that's why I use when does the Wexler the predominantly. come out, if I may to-
2: interrupt? Yeah. Oh, when did, the, when did the Wexler come out as a test that was used out, uh, the Wexlers, out in the wild? The Wexler
0: and the Stanford, me came out like in the 40s.
2: Oh, okay, gotcha.
0: 40s, right. 50s, and it's been, it's been it, I don't to be honest. They gave to be the honestly, Stanford
2: Benet, but the Wexler was an option. They just didn't do it.
0: Yeah, so I, exactly, the Wexler came after the Stanford Benet, right. Um, okay. So okay. I use the Wexler just because it's shorter and it's more relevant to, to the to general population and the folks that I work with. So I use the Wexler exclusively. Um, yeah. But I, I tell everybody, we can't even, as a as a group of people, as a group of mental health professionals, whether psychiatrists, psychologists, whatever, we can't mm. even completely agree what this thing called intelligence is. So if you can't identify a construct and operationalize it, how in the blue blazes can you get a test that measures it? Well, you can't. So what does IQ really measure? It measures school-related abilities and jobs that reinforce the same kinds of tasks that the school trains you to do so it's predominantly it's particularly let's talk about the wax it's very heavily laden in information database short-term long-term memory abstract synthetic reasoning also known as executive functioning and verbal skills and auditory processing skills and it's not going to tell how good of a musician you're going to be it's not going to tell how, how great an olympic athlete you're going to be or a taxi cab driver or a haute couture person, or a you know gourmet mm. chef, or a cab driver, or a bricklayer, or or an architect necessarily. Now there's the math in there, but the math in the IQ test is not really math. It's word problems that you have to do in your head, so it's really not math. It's really auditory short-term memory and auditory number mani- digit manipulation, <laughs> so it really doesn't measure arithmetic at all. <laughs> or Not to quote sure. Andy Rooney. Right. So to quote Andy Rooney, it doesn't measure arithmetic at all. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. you got to love that guy. But that, anyway. things I was
2: wondering because a lot of people have complained that a lot of these tests don't measure things that are intellectual That they, that they are – yeah, they're like misnamed. Logic, they're misnamed. Yes, yeah. yes. Yes, they're,
0: they're misnamed. misnamed, Right. So that's really what an IQ test is. So what an IQ test is, at least the Wechsler, is like 17 subtests that measure different aspects of how your brain processes data. It's a mental abilities test, right? So call it a freaking mental abilities test and not an IQ test, please, okay? Um, So that's what it is. So to be gifted, now back to your original question, in order to be gifted, at least in America, right, you have to reach a certain cutoff point. The average IQ of every person, regardless of age, gender, sexual orientation, whatever, uh, the average, the 68 to 69 percent of the population, right? The average, the mean, right? The normal, hence the normal curve, right? Is an IQ score, standardized IQ score, of between 100, excuse me, between 90 and 110, with 100 being the mean. So, in general, if you 're over one fifteen, which is a standard deviation and a half above the mean because it 's a ten point uh, thing for the for one deviation one standard deviation. Wow. So if you're 115 is considered high average and anything over 120 is considered gifted. Anything over 130, 135, depending on what state you're in, depending on who you talk to, it's considered quote-unquote genius. And if you're over, I think, 140, uh, you get invited to sit for Mensa, or uh, 145 in some places. And so think of giftedness and learning disorders as – double gangers of each other. They're the exact opposite, the mirror image. So 85 on an IQ test of 100 is the mean, the average, right? 85 or less is considered rut row, right, to use astral language. And anything less than 80 is considered learning disordered, which basically means you are two standard deviations below the average person in your same age and gender. Just like being gifted means you're two standard deviations above your age and gender norm period. That's the definition. Okay? Now, if you're below 70, you are now what's called intellectually disabled, which is what used to be called mentally retarded. And then there's degrees of, of intellectual disabilities. You can have a weakness in an area and not be officially learning disordered LD. Right? So if you have, for example, let's say that uh, you have uh, verbal expression scores. You t- so you take an achievement test. An IQ is an aptitude test. Think of aptitude as built-in RAM memory of the computer. Okay? okay? You can increase RAM memory. You can, If you juggle a computer and you break the RAM chips, you can decrease RAM memory, right? So IQ score is very variable. And the younger you measure it, the more unstable it is. It gets more stable as you get to your late teens and early 20s. But... It's also dependent on things like did you get enough sleep did you show in show up with a hangover uh were you mm-hmm. uber pissed off or stressed out? did you just get audited by the i r s did you get just beat up by a crowd on the way to taking the test um you know did you just win the lottery did you you know did your wife just have a baby? did your boyfriend just run off with Pedro the bullfighter <laughs> <In a laughs> twisted version of Carmen, right I mean you know it's, it's dependent on mood and how much what, – what did you eat? Did you get too much sugar before you walked into the session, mm-hmm. right? Did you come in with a hangover? All those impact your brain's ability to process data, which means you're going to have a lower or higher IQ score depending on the mood you're in. Did you eat a shoot ton of protein before you showed up, bioavailable protein, and your brain's going, are you threatening me? <laughs> <laughs> um, so, I mean, it's really – variable. And so you can have an IQ score, you get at 14, and at 20 your IQ may have changed. How much did you study? How much did you work on the areas that you were weak in? Got, they got measured by the first IQ test, okay? So IQ is RAM memory built in. What's your computer able to do right here, right now? Achievement, right, is how are you allocating the RAM? And typically when you see a difference between IQ and achievement scores, the achievement scores are a lot lower than the IQ is, measured IQ at that particular time, you're having what I call an OBF, an organic brain fart. And if it's bad enough, it, it falls under the learning disorder category. If it's not bad enough, if it's not 20 points or whatever, it's a weakness. Okay. So you really can tell where the allocation of the neural pathways are coming and what's working really well, what's working over time, and what's not working very well. And that's the beauty of this stuff because you can see where a person uh, has issues and where they're just kicking everybody else's patooties. And the, and you really have to look at all the subscales of the IQ test. You can't just look at the IQ number because IQ is like 17 numbers. And I tell people, always tell people, think of it like a pyramid. So the top of the pyramid is this thing we call a full-scale IQ score or full-scale index score, right? And now there's a four or five composite scores under that that average making up the full-scale IQ. Things like verbal comprehension, perceptual orient- uh, organization, uh, working memory, processing speed, right? Those are made up of the individual subtests, the three to five individual subtests under each one of those composite domains that make up this thing we call working memory, right? So you could have a totally normal full-scale IQ. You could, let's say that you have an IQ score of 100, which is flat-ass average. And if you look at some of the subtests, you could have subtests that range from gifted to drooling. <laughs> right, and you would never know that if all you knew was this general i q score it's very misleading, which is why you have gotcha. to look at the subtest scores that make up the i q and where the i q is, and then what's the discrepancy between the sub the uh composite scores, and the same thing with the achievement scores so if you give a, an achievement battery like let's say the woodcock Johnson, which is the one I use, but there there are a lot of them out there that are good. And I give the entire Woodcock Genesis like 59 subtests. It's a major pain in the patootie, but it's very thorough, and I really love it. Um, I I love the results I get from it. I don't like administering it so much, and people (laughs) sure as hell don't like taking it. But anyway, um, and, and like the IQ score, it has composite scores and individual scores. And if you look at those, you can really see where do you have brain farts where do you have brain neural pathways that are just kicking the heck out of everybody else? And where do you have stuff that's totally quote unquote normal? And because the achievement scores are also normal on the same 90 to 110 scale, obviously. So you can compare apples to apples. And that's really what we're talking about. So what we're talking about in gifted is a person who has a substantially higher IQ than the average Joe or Jolene of that person's age and gender. And, That's just cognitive processing. Now, can they use those IQ scores? You won't know that until you look at the achievement scores. And here's the other problem. If all they have is high IQ and they're not very socially appropriate or don't have a lot of what I call social common sense or they don't have a lot of emotional common sense, what you know Goldman will call emotional quotient, right, EQ, uh, Mm -hmm. they're not going to do very well. And if you look at most of the research data, it clearly supports that the people who have a higher EQ and are better at social, interpersonal stuff do a whole lot better than the folks who just have high IQ. That is no, first of all, there's no prophylaxis against psychopathology. And if you don't believe me, look at Ted Bundy and look at people like uh, Kemper, the co killer, who's got like 25 IQ points on me, and I've got a really high IQ. So, I mean, you know, that's why I tell all my patients, what does a high IQ get you? The death sentence and and, uh, life in prison (laughs) if you don't have the EQ to back it up. So it's it's overrated. I mean, it's overrated. And I I say that with a guy who has an IQ. It's overrated. I'm not, I'm glad I have it, you know, and it's the reason I have 9,000 things after my name. But it's not the whole picture. And you'll get some people, for example, who have autism or on the spectrum who have what I call real autism and not what used to be called Asperger's. And you get those people, and some of those folks have ridiculous gifts in areas that you're going, how the hell did that person get that? Right? And they are clearly, quote, unquote, gifted in those areas, although if you measure their IQ, their IQ scores are in the, are in the dirt for the most part. You look at some ADHD people, and they have average or below average IQs, but they've got skill sets in certain areas, and 7% of the ADHD population have some form of executive functioning, abstract reasoning, which they're not supposed to have, which I call the bumblebee effect. So for folks who don't know the bumblebee's physics of the bumblebee's body, the bumblebee, it's really impossible from a... Aerodynamic perspective, it's impossible for a Bumblebee to fly, but nobody told the Bumblebee that, so it flies anyway. Right? Go screw your aerodynamics. Well, wow. that's what I call right. That's what I call the seven percent ADHD people, the the five to seven percent who have abstract reasoning. They're not supposed to have it, but nobody told them that. And those are <laughs> the ADHD people who are typically successful. The other ones, not so much.
2: Gotcha. I right, so you really don't know, Jack,
0: about Um, – you don't know, Jack, about somebody if all you know is their IQ. You know that they're gifted, but how are they using the – are they lazy? Are they sitting on their gifted laurels not using their brain power? That's not helping them. Are they using them for nefarious purposes? That's not good.
2: So I got a question for you. Um, Sure. uh, Several several times in this last little explanation, you have mentioned – that they measure your i q against people of your age and gender, why is it that they use gender?
0: Because some uh women are better higher on some things than men are. their brains are wired a little bit differently, and they they have better skill sets in some areas than guys do, particularly at younger so it's ages.
2: A, it's a biochemical thing that actually happens.
0: yeah, it's from... a biochemical biological wiring dilly, yeah,
2: huh, okay.
0: Yeah, they typically I, better, for example, they typically better time. math. Yeah.
2: Gotcha, okay, that makes sense. All righty. And they, so mature, with they that, mature
0: earlier than guys in general.
2: Ooh, yes, also true, different, different uh, average age of puberty
0: probably mm-hmm. enters into mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. Okay. That is correct. Okay,
2: so this is actually a good transition for the next thing that I want to talk about because we're already touching on it, and that is the possible flaws and social biases in IQ testing, you know, things right. like culture, culture norms, community norms, socioeconomic status, and, and a lot of these things probably affect the test because of the flaws that you pointed out earlier.
0: You know, if they're well, using they, those they things to measure it. it. They, the socioeconomic status affects it uh, because if you don't have the money, you don't go to school, you don't earn certain – you know, you don't go that far in school, or you get discouraged – Because you live in the ghettos or in the funky part of town or your parents don't, you know, don't value education and you get involved in gangs or drugs or whatever, and you're not learning stuff in school, you're not going to do well on an IQ test. Does that mean you're a dumbass? No, not necessarily. But if you don't right. know, how do you know, right? And how are you going to know if you don't have, if that's not being reinforced, if education is not important in your culture or in your socioeconomic status or if you're in a, mm-hmm. uh, you know, a religious group or a segment of the population that says women are not supposed to be educated, you're supposed to be home and learning house skills because guys are going to take care of you and you're going to be home and pregnant, you know, which, which still yeah. exists in certain parts of this country. You know, it, oh, yeah, you it think does. that that's a third world country thing, but that's not. That's not the case. No, no, you know, not
1: necessarily. <laughs> right,
0: right. And let's say that you have a dis. Let's say that you have a learning problem, a learning disability, or you have ADHD, and it doesn't get recognized. Now your brain is miswiring, and you're going to typically score lower on an IQ test. And you can't figure out why the heck what's wrong with you because you're putting time in and you're doing this stuff and you're not getting it because your brain doesn't learn the same way another person's, a a quote-unquote normal person's brain, you know, a standardized person's brain works. Well, that's true with gifted people too, which is why you see gifted kids often have a shoot-ton of emotional problems, particularly the more gifted they are. Because here's the thing, if you look at the the bell-shaped curve, that little tail that comes off the bell-shaped curve says how far afield from the norm you are. And when you get over about 130 or 130, actually when you get over 125, 130, you're in the, the 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999 People aren't dumb. They know that other people are giving them dirty looks and like what when they make comments out of their mouth that they think everybody agrees with, and they look at you like you came off the in the battleship, you know, Galactica or something, um, and they are often ostracized because they're often quote unquote geeky or nerdy. They often have interests that aren't typical. For their age and gender group. Mm-hmm. They're not interested in the same things as their peer group because they typically associate with older people, adults even. Mm-hmm. And I certainly did. I didn't feel comfortable with my peer group. So you'll see yeah. a lot of gifted kids with emotional problems. That's very typical. That's very normal. Yeah. Just like. The autism spectrum kids have because they get rejected, and some of the ADHD kids make fun of and, oh, you're a loser, you're just dumb, you can't learn. About it. Right? It's the same principle. Anybody who is not quote unquote neurotypical, whatever your neurotypical dilly is, <laughs> whatever version of that you are, right? Uh, if you're not normal, quote unquote, uh, yeah. you ain't right. And if you ain't right, you ain't one of us, <laughs> right? Yeah. And it's one of those things, conform and recast out, to quote Rush subdivisions, one of my favorite songs. Gotcha. Um, yeah, and, and, and that's why you see a lot of the ADHD the people and the autism spectrum people and the gifted kids all having problems. They hang out with different groups because mm-hmm. they gravitate towards their own kind. You know, it's like water seeks its own level. Yeah. Well, n- yeah. neuroatypical people seek their, you know, own level of similar a- neuroatypical persons,
2: <laughs> right? Mm-hmm.
0: And, the rest of, and the rest of the world just thinks they're weird. And they catch a so lot of flight what, from that.
2: What I want to do here is go ahead and jump to the third section because you're touching around the edges of it. And we're getting a little bit close to the top of the hour, so I want to make sure we've got time okay. for this. Um, sure. So the the next thing I want to talk about, and it, this is a related segue, it, the prevalence of ADHD or ASD in gifted persons versus neurotypical gifted awkwardness. You know, you were just talking about being different. And the, the NIH study that I d- didn't include it in the script, because honestly, it was kind of pedantic. And it's an excellent study, but it's really, really crunchy. But one of the things I pulled out of there was the fact that there is not a lot of codified, vetted research about people who have ADHD or people who have uh, ASD, or especially people who have Asperger's. I'm, I'm including it because the DSM does, but under protest, right. as everyone right. knows, right. you know that, that's tacitly understood. We don't agree with that decision, but I'm going to use it because that's what the study said. Sure. And sure. They, they mentioned that these things are not heavily researched and measured. And, you know, they should be, and they're sniffing around it, but there's not a lot of other studies. And so looking at these similarities is fairly new and not heavily researched yet. But where where the meme was going and the points that brought this whole topic up is people were kind of getting into chicken and the egg about whether either of these pathologies tend to do things that make your IQ clock is higher. And I could see the propensity for this both in um, those who have what used to be called Asperger's and, and their pet topics where they can have incredible levels of expertise and knowledge about stuff can come across as giftedness or may even validly be giftedness. And then also mm-hmm. ADHD hyperfocus, same thing. Mm-hmm. You know the ability to really hone in on a topic and come up with amazing stuff because you just fall down that rabbit hole and you don't come out. For yeah, hours that's called perseveration. Discover all the things. Oh, okay. So yeah. relating it, to what you it, said about it jacks the flaws of the dopamine.
0: Test. Right, because okay. it jacks up their dopamine, and they have such a depletion of dopamine that anything jacks up their dopamine, they're on it like stink on a June bug. The problem is they can't stay on it <laughs> yeah. because the newness wears off and the dopamine goes back down and now they're bored and they're going to something else.
2: Gotcha. Okay, so it is not – basically, here's the point I wanted to make sure to examine tonight is that okay. it's not necessarily true that either of these pathologies automatically make you clock as gifted. That's not absolutely a, that's not Absolutely not.
0: The, the reverse is usually true. I run into very few ADHD people who are gifted.
1: Very
0: few. And even fewer autism spectrum people are gifted. Now, having just said that... <laughs> The young man I tested just recently that I gave the results to yesterday had some amazing IQ scores, and he's ADHD as heck, had some amazing Mm -hmm. IQ scores like in the 120s and 130s in certain areas, achievement areas. I'm Mm -hmm. like, whoa. Uh, And I tested an an autistic person who would have been labeled moderate to severe Asperger, uh, as I like to call it, the disorder formerly known as. Uh, and yeah. this kid was gifted. And I'm like, uh, you're not supposed to be able to do that, dude. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> I mean, this was a kid who had eye contact, for example, which which autism kids far and away don't do. Struggle with. Uh, yeah, right. He made great jokes. I mean, he started, he was cracking jokes like nobody, and I'm like, and they were good jokes, not like mine. I mean, (laughs) they were good jokes, right? And I'm like, oh, dude, you could go on the road with that shit, right? Super nice, super engaging, and I'm like, Mm -hmm. what the hell, right? And got some very strong, uh, he had had the LDs and the stuff that a lot of autism kids had, but really in some areas, he was just kicking patooties, and I'm just like, Holy shoes! So you really don't know what you got until you do. Again, why I like the testing? Because if you were to say, "Oh, another ADHD kid," oh my god, and oh my god, another autism spectrum kid, and you roll your eyes and make all these assumptions, which I'm, mm-hmm. I'm sorry to say, I, I'm guilty of doing from time to time. Both of these cases were great examples for me to wake up and smell a coffee because uh, they were, could not be more atypical. of their uh, diagnostic group. And that's a good thing. Mm -hmm. This is where being a weirdo is a good thing. (laughs) (laughs) These guys were neuroatypical for their neuroatypicality.
2: (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, Gotcha. Okay. And then so also conversely, if somebody does test as heavily gifted, it doesn't necessarily mean they have either pathology. That's also not an assumption.
0: That is correct. Is that correct? That is correct. And, but they could, you know, they all of your uber, well, I shouldn't say this, a large portion of your uber successful antisocials, they have high IQs. Yeah. Which is really,
2: I, <laughs> I did which is frightening that tonight because that's a whole topic on itself. I me, you know, maybe that's we'll do really that frightening. That. But there's,
0: if you look at the yeah. uber successful ones and actually here's an even more frightening thought. Okay. Mm-hmm. The really uber-successful ones haven't been caught. We don't know who they are. These are the unsolved the- cold cases, right, with the, with the, oh, my God, we've got this murderer that's been operating for 25 years, and we have no flipping clue who it is, and he's go- he or she's going up and down the east coast or the west coast, so t- you know, we have all these unsolved cases. We can't put them together. Those are the uber-smarties who have antisocial personality disorder, and you can bet your bippy they have IQs. And they have good EQs because they're smart enough not to send letters to the press going, na 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 nah, nah, catch me if you can and leaving all these signature marks to just do their business, get their jollies and move on. Yeah. And that's a gotcha. really frightening.
2: Okay. You know, you we this may turn into a topic for later on. Well
0: oh, there possible. you go. There you go. So,
2: all right. With that, we are getting close to the top of the hour. So, at this point, is there anything else that you want to gesture at specifically that maybe we haven't touched on enough or uh, not at all, whatever? I just
0: want to say one thing. Just because you have a low IQ, so to speak, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to be a loser and a failure. And just because you have a high IQ definitely does not mean you're going to be a success, right? Right. Uh, it really yeah. depends on so many other factors, including drive, resiliency, determination uh, emotional stability uh, opportunities to succeed you know if you 're in a culture that values that kind of thing and they and parents encourage their kids or whatever it's or mm-hmm. you know husbands encourage their wives or wives encourage their husbands or whatever it 's you know it's it 's a lot of different factors so don 't you know, don't bet on the racehorse that has a high IQ just because the racehorse has a high IQ. You're going to be wrong a lot of the time.
2: Yeah. Okay. Uh, and, that course,
0: it's not going to always win the race. In fact, that horse may only win the race 50% of the time. Yeah.
2: Definitely. Okay. So th- that is very helpful because one of the things I-, I talked about, you know, with my friend that mentioned the text test earlier and i think it may have been the wexler she was referring to now that i stopped to think about it um we had kind of agreed that it was probable that with the tests that we have now even with the better ones in the stanford Binet, you still have a thing where on the high end you can't really pass that unless you have some ability but on the other end there's lots of things that you could not test very high on, but you do have ability. But it's the way that the test goes and what it's measuring; it can miss things.
0: So, is, is yeah, that I mean, I'll pretty g- much I'll give you the a great limit? example. Yeah. I'll give okay. you a real quick example. Um, so, most of you probably know from previous shows if you've listened to the show. My father had ADHD out of everybody, or if he could possibly have, and let me tell you how <laughs> bad it was. Um, yes. And it was it was so bad. That he got asked to leave, and he was your typical conduct-disordered kid who was doing all these crazy, destructive things. And the school basically said, you know, take your kid out of the school, please, before we kill him. Uh, And his mom (laughs) uh, lied about his age and signed him into the military when he was too young. But she lied about it and signed signed him in. uh, Because structure is a good thing for ADHD people. And I can tell you that my father did not have a high IQ. Um,
2: Okay.
0: He was, but he was driven as hell and made a really good life for himself from a financial perspective. Um, Unfortunately, he was also a narcissist, which made living with him a real pain in the patootie. But from a success perspective, he was extremely well-respected in the community. He did very, very well financially and provided
1: really, really
0: well for me and for my mother and if you had just looked at he had, a, he had a, barely a seventh grade education. So just because you have high school and or college degree doesn't mean you're going to be successful. And so he had yeah. none of those things. But he was a never say die driven like a mofo kind of guy, which is not typical of ADHD people, but it is of some. And this guy was one of them. Right. He was driven like a heart attack and he was very successful and nobody would have ever guessed that his family was not poor uh, excuse me was not uh, wealthy they were very poor they lived in you know uh, substandard growing up lived in you know he grew up during the depression and his family got hit by the yeah. depression so he, he had everything going against him and he made a lot of stuff out of what he had yeah so
2: Okay, Yeah. so this this is good. So on behalf of Dr. Mathis and myself and NDB Media, we want to thank our listeners this evening and give our appreciation to those of you who may be joining us later via podcast, iTunes, etc. And we'll see you guys in two weeks with a new topic for discussion. That'll be Wednesday, March 16th, 11 p.m. as always, Eastern Time, right here on blogtalkradio.com. I want to give a quick shout-out to other NDB Media shows that are coming up in the next couple of weeks. Uh, Travel Itch Radio tomorrow night, 8 p.m. Eastern Time. For the first time in our 11-year run, Travel It's Radio journeys to Buffalo, New York, to find out what's happening on the American side of the Niagara Falls. Hear about the Western New, New York City's renaissance and historic legacy when Dan Schlossberg and Mariella Nugent Lee interview Tina Cumiega of explore buffalo on saturday sports talk with the guys saturday morning extravaganza 9 a.m eastern time the monday morning quarterbacks are live on saturday morning this is hosted on Streamyard. please check the ndb media facebook page for links and times uh, sunday the 6th coming up this weekend 8 30 p.m eastern time please join me for the walking dead online viewing party And we will be doing Season 11, Episode 11, Rogue Element. The synopsis is, Eugene looks for Stephanie after she mysteriously goes missing. Connie investigates a story on Trooper Davis. And Carol helps Hornsby with a labor dispute at a drug farm. Monday Night in America with Roger Noriega, the following evening, 10 p.m. Eastern Time. Roger Noriega brings you his unique take on politics, current events, Entertainment, sci-fi, and history, currently also hosted on StreamYard. Check the page for links. Tuesday at 10 p.m., Fandom Access Week in Review. Join the TV tantrum of Jamie, Karen, and AJ as they digest another night of television. Please look for the Rock and Roll Shrink on Facebook, on Twitter, on iTunes, and on the web at www.rockandrollshrink.com. Good night, everybody. Thank you for joining us. See you soon and rock on. Good night.